welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Nicolette Nyman is a world-renowned expert in the management of the production of livestock and poultry. In recent years, she has gained a national reputation as an advocate for sustainable food production and improved farm animal welfare. She has been featured in Time Magazine, O Magazine, Paleo Magazine, and many other publications, and has appeared on, on the PBS NewsHour, The Dr. Oz Show, and The Diane Rem Show, among others. She has spoken at Yale, Stanford, UC Berkeley, and numerous other universities, and was just one of 23 speakers from around the world at the 2016 Nobel Week Dialogue about food in Stockholm, Sweden. She is the author of The Righteous Pork Chop and has written for numerous publications, including The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, The Huffington Post, and The Atlantic. Her latest book, Defending Beef, The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat, is both fascinating and critically acclaimed. She lives on a ranch in Bolinas, California, with her husband, Bill, and their two sons, Miles and Nicholas. Nicolette, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, it's an absolute honor to host you, although I have to say I lost a little bit of clout with you when I heard you on um, Diane Rogers' show say that you were in your 50s, which is clearly not true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I try to maintain my youthful uh, appearance, but uh, yeah, I'm super focused on, you know, as you are obviously on, you know, living in a healthy way. So I've, I've always been a big, uh, you know, I don't want to call myself an athlete because I'm not like an acclaimed, you know, like accomplished athlete, but I, you know, an, on an amateur level, I've done a ton of um, triathlons and races and I do a lot of biking, running, you know, weightlifting, blah, blah, blah. So I do try to stay in good shape. And I, of course, pay a lot of attention to what I eat. Well, that is really good. I, I would have guessed like maybe 30s, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, well, I'm sitting here in my, it's not the cow, it's the how t-shirt from Diana's company. I'm really excited to talk to you about cows. Um, twice a week, I get to ride my bike to one of my client's house where I get to train him. And so I get to ride on this street, which is a five lane street. The speed limit's like 45, 50 miles an hour. There are trucks both directions, blasting, blasting exhaust on me. These are like jacked up, you know, pickup yeah. trucks that will never see dirt at all. I don't know why they're jacked up like that. It's just for appearance, maybe 10 miles right. to the gallon. And in the outskirts of Salt Lake City, it's kind of unique where I am. Like this all used to be farm country and now it's all being developed. And so like there, you'll see like little pastures like here or there that don't really belong with like a brand new subdivision. And I, I get a, you know, right along this road and along this road, there's a little um, grassy area and I see two or three cows. And every time I pass them, I'm like, ah, oh, you, you little bastards, like ruining the planet, totally destroying the planet. <laughs> Yeah. sitting there chewing yeah. on the grass like do you have that same feeling oh i the irony it's it's it, it is yeah it's insane and in fact um you know it's one of the things that i think it's kind of contributing to the cynicism we're all kind of experiencing these days about information and you know and just sort of the way you know public discussions go and the way public policy discussions go because there's so much just your common sense is telling you, you know, you're looking, as you said, at a couple of cattle in a, you know, in a little paddock on grass and, you know, they're just minding their own business, chewing the grass and they're being vilified and all these big vehicles with terrible exhaust and terrible fuel efficiency and stuff are being essentially almost ignored in so much of this. And, you know, one of the things that I did when I started, um, you know, researching and writing, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times quite a few years ago about climate change and about the way there was this inordinate attention being paid to livestock. And that was when I first started really digging into it. 
And I realized there was, if you just look at any charts, you know, whether it's about world emissions or, or domestic emissions in the United States or anything, all of agriculture is a pretty small portion of that. It's in the U.S. It's about 10% of the global warming emissions that are from all of agriculture combined. And a portion of that is all of the ruminant animals. And then a portion of that is cattle. You know, so even just looking at the raw data from, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency. So that's our official government agency that tells us how much, you know, emissions there are in the country. If you just look at those inventories, it tells you cattle are just a very small portion of the emissions. And that data does not even take into account the mitigation that you get from the carbon that they're sequestering by, you know, in, in the soils through their, you know, through their bodily actions. But, you know, when you, whenever you have uh, livestock on grass, they are basically um, consuming the vegetation. And then, of course, they're returning urine and manure back into the soils. And there's a lot of really good research, as you know, Casey, because you've seen my books, you know, from around the world that um, that has now documented that you get a lot of carbon stored in the soil through the presence of those animals. Those animals are actually triggering a lot of carbon going back into the soils. And now there's a lot of really good research that's really trying to quantify how much of that uh, and, and there needs to be more and there is more happening, you know, but but there's been already some very good research done showing that the total amount of carbon going into the soils when it's when they're well managed can actually be greater than the complete output of gas emissions, including um, you know any form of carbon like methane. So um, you can actually have not just carbon neutral beef, but you can have carbon negative beef when you do it well. But let's say you're doing it badly, and let's say you're not managing the cattle well on uh, pasture, and let's say you're grain feeding them, and you know the things that are more intensive in terms of emissions potential it's still a relatively small amount of um, of emissions. And, and, you know, we can talk about this in, in more depth, but in the books, I, I talk a lot about methane and, and why the whole methane emission issue has been so misunderstood. But basically any common sense review of this and all of the climate scientists know that uh, cattle are a really small um, part of the whole uh, global warming picture, and that by far the largest portion of the world's emissions are from fossil fuel emissions, and uh, especially things like, um, obviously, transportation is a huge piece, and um, there's actually been really good, really interesting research that's just been published in the last few weeks about methane emissions that are um, basically leaks coming out of all kinds of um, you know, natural gas production from around the world, which hasn't even been measured and isn't regulated in Europe and in the United States. And there's some really good studies that just came out in the last few weeks showing that those are huge sources of emissions. So you have all this ridiculous, you know, you, you have this tremendous body of evidence showing that cattle are actually a really small piece of the whole problem. And there's this unbelievably large amount of attention being paid to it, you know. So when I had a conversation with a physicist at Oxford University, Dr. Miles Allen, who I talk about quite a bit in my book, who's a who's an expert on meth in, on methane emissions and global warming, and he told me he was incredibly frustrated by the amount of attention being paid to beef and cattle because he said everybody knows that's a very minor issue, and the much greater issue is the industrial emissions and particularly the fossil fuels. So you know, 
like you said, <laughs> you're driving by and you're seeing these cattle and on your bicycle, and you're also being surrounded by these, you know, these large vehicles that are spewing, you know, all kinds of, you know, pollutants into the air and everybody's talking about the beef. It's, it's kind of silly. It's crazy. It, like you said, it's like common sense. Like I would rather ride my bike around a pasture and get blasted by cow belches <laughs> than I would <laughs> some of these trucks, like clearly. But you're right. Like the, the, your book is so fascinating. And, you know, this is a concept that's not really new to me, but it, it's it, your book like really deep dives into all of this data, everything that's being ignored or shoved under the rug, or it's like inconvenient for them to change the way they've done things. And so all of this like makes it onto some stupid documentary that makes it onto Netflix with a bunch of cute cows and everybody gets such misleading information from that. It's such, it's such a shame. It's such a bummer. I can't stand that. Well, I, and, and I think, you know, I have this, um, larger now I was, I was on a city, I was on the city council for the city of Kalamazoo in Michigan, you know, which is a town of about 80,000 people. And I was on that for uh, two terms when I was in my twenties and early thirties. And at that time, you know, I was quite young and I, you know, I thought of public issues in a certain way. And now, you know, it's like 25 years later and I've learned a lot in the, in the, you know, in the past couple of decades about how public issues work in terms of how they evolve and how the discussion goes. And one thing I've learned is, there's a tremendous amount of attention often being paid to kind of small things that are kind of, for whatever reason, there's a hook, you know, there's a kind of public hook that gets people excited about it. And then, you know, it's a kind of a charismatic issue for whatever reason. And then it kind of, things tend to um, balance out over time. You know, there's a little bit more, you know, counter information that comes in and there's more, uh, reflection that takes place and there's more critique. So, but one thing I've realized is with social media and with the way, you know, the cowspiracy documentary that I think you were just referring to, that was actually funded um, by, you know, um, basically crowdsourcing. And so you had a lot of vegans that came together and put their money into it and funded it. And, um, you know, the way a documentary would have been filmed and funded 20 or 30 years ago uh, would have been a different process. You would have had an idea presented to foundations and they would have looked at it and they would have made sure that it was balanced and sensible, you know, and then there would have been a whole kind of review process to make sure, yes, this is a legitimate thing, right? <laughs> and then, and I mean, in some ways we have this democratization of, of information, which is great, but then we also have a democratization of misinformation, you know, so there's the, the, there are a lot of quote unquote documentaries. I really don't think they even deserve that title because they're not documentaries. They're just advocacy pieces and they're portraying a particular perspective. And a lot of the information around meat and especially around beef and cattle is really designed to create the impression that you shouldn't be eating beef and you shouldn't be raising cattle. And, and it doesn't matter to the people that are creating those films how credible it is, you know, or how scientific it is, or how legitimate it is. It's simply a perspective, and they try to gather information that supports that perspective. My background is as a, tra I was trained as a scientist, as a biologist, and then I went to law school and was a lawyer for 10 years. So my whole background is about 
okay, how do we gather, how do we discern things? You know, how do we um, find the most credible information on any given issue? And I really believe in that. So I'm, I'm involved directly in raising cattle now as, you know, part of my, you know, that's what our, my family does now because my husband is Bill Nyman, the founder of the Nyman Ranch Meat Company, and we live on a ranch and we raise uh, cattle and we sell the meat. So obviously people could say, well, she's biased. That's certainly a legitimate criticism, but you know, my background is all about um, looking at information, understanding what's credible and valid, and and it's very important to me. Everything I've ever written is based on you know legitimate peer-reviewed science, and and also personal anecdote from credible sources and, and my own experiences. So you know, I balance it. I have a lot of different sources of information, but I just really believe in the importance of real information. And, and um, so what I've done, you know, in the Defending Beef book and everything I've written is to try to really sift through the information and say, well, here's what's credible. And when you do that, you see that there's a, dis, a wildly disproportionate um, amount of attention being paid to certain issues. And this question of eating meat, now there's, um, you know, there's enough resources in the animal rights and vegan movement that they can just sort of relentlessly attack this whole idea that we should even be eating meat at all. And it's given more credence than it was before, just based on the fact that there's, you know, there's a more, more presence of it out there. There's more presence on social media and these, you know, phony documentaries and, um, and it gives it more credibility. Um, but the facts are, are the same, <laughs> you know, the facts are still the same. And so um, I feel like what I'm trying to do in my writing is present credible information and nuance a lot of the discussion that's taking place about meat and sustainability and diet and health. Hmm. Yeah, I, ju- I, I, I will give you that. I will say it's fair to say, okay, Nicolette is making money because she's selling beef. So of course she's going to put this pro beef book out there, but knowing your history and first of all, knowing how well written that book is, you did a fantastic job. I can definitely see your lawyer background in your writing. You you made like a case, almost like a Gary Taub style case, like really very well done, really interesting read. Um, but also, it's not like you just came to this conclusion overnight. You marry this dude and he's a rancher, so now you're a rancher and you're eating meat all the time. That's not really how it happened. It was kind of, you went into it like almost like kicking and screaming a little bit and learned a lot of unexpected things along the way. Can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't quite say I went kicking and screaming into my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But, but Sorry, it Bill. Is certainly true. It is certainly true. You know, I'd been a vegetarian for a long time when I married Bill Nyman. And that surprised some people, obviously, um, you know, sort of an unusual choice to marry someone who was uh, raising cattle and was um, selling meat. And at that time, he was the CEO of Nyman Ranch. And that's an unusual, you know, marriage choice for someone that is a vegetarian. But on the other hand, you know, I have this very strong background in sort of, um, I spent a lot of time outside in nature as a kid. I grew up near this large, like 200 acre tract of undeveloped land. And I, and my father was, he's a history professor. He was a history professor. And we used to go on these long walks. He used to go out there every single day when I was a kid with our dogs and, um, and I very often went with him and I would go out there by myself as well with friends. And we just play out there 
um, there were great trees and there was a huge swing out oh, there and all kinds of amazing. stuff. And it was just, you know, it was kind of like, that was, that was the way a lot of kids grew up in that era, right? Um, with much less supervision than kids normally get nowadays. But I had this whole kind of um, perspective that I had always grown up with of um, thinking it was important to learn about nature and to understand how nature works. And then I went to college and majored in biology and obviously that gave me a lot more understanding about nature. And I was, I was um, already involved in environmental causes as a high school you know, kid and then in college. And actually that's why I became a vegetarian because for the most part, it was because there was all this focus on the environmental impact of, of you know, especially beef production. And I gave up beef first because I thought, well, that's the worst for the environment because there was all this attention being paid to you know deforestation in the Amazon, which was being connected to American beef. And actually, as I go through this in a lot of detail in the book, there's actually very little connection, if any, between American beef consumption and what's happening in the Amazon related to cattle. And, you know, and I kind of explain in, in a lot of detail why there isn't really a connection there. But at the time I became a vegetarian, I thought that's, I thought that was true. You know, that if you were eating hamburgers, you were causing deforestation down in, you know, the Amazon, which I didn't want to do. So um, I became a vegetarian in college. And then when I married Bill, you know, to his credit, he never tried to convert me uh, to be a meat eater, but I, I wasn't really sort of kicking and screaming. <laughs> as you said, in, into the marriage, because I actually really admired Bill for the way that he, you know, his own ethics surrounding the way that he raised his animals. And he had created this network of hundreds of farmers and ranchers that were all following um, the standards that he had developed with the Animal Welfare Institute and others um, to, to make sure that all the animals were given, you know, were well taken care of and that the land was well taken care of. So he was actually, um, we had begun working when I worked for Waterkeeper Alliance as an environmental lawyer, we had worked very closely with the Nyman Ranch network of farmers to um, use as an example of how you could do things really well and show that you know meat meat production is not inherently uh, bad. And when I married Bill, I came out here um, from New York uh, to California. That's where I live now. Still, um, we've been married for eighteen years, and um, and I thought, well, I'll just be you know I'll live here and be in be in vegetarian and stuff and not really worry. I, I won't pay that much attention to the ranch. <laughs> I'll just kind of, <laughs> you know, do my own thing here. But what was super fascinating to me is that I got um, really interested in the ranch. I just couldn't kind of help myself. It's so, it's so interesting, you know, and I kind of got drawn into it. I, I did little jobs around the ranch and then I did more. And I, and then I said to Bill one night over dinner, I said, uh, you know, I'd like to learn how to do everything on the ranch. And, um, and he was sort of surprised by that, but I ended up working pretty much full time for about seven years on the ranch and then when we started having children, I, you know, I, I wasn't able to do that as much anymore. Um, and I started writing, and I was writing books and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I didn't um, continue to do it full time after those first seven years. But I learned a tremendous amount during that time. And I'm really grateful that I've had that opportunity to, you know, really get the firsthand um actually working on the land and with the animals every day kind of experience that farmers and ranchers have. And I, that has really helped me to understand the frustration that so many people in agriculture feel about how, you know, a lot of the public dialogue that's out there surrounding meat, because it's, 
it's their, their daily experience is so different from what they're hearing, the way they're hearing themselves talked about, right. In the, in, you know, the the mainstream media. Mm. And so I kind of feel like my job now is to, um, is to be the voice of, you know, sort of sensible, um, animal husbandry and meat production. And, um, and with someone that has all those different backgrounds, you know, as a biologist and an environmental lawyer and a rancher, and then former vegetarian, because I did start eating meat again, um, about a year and a half ago. Mm, wow. I, I'm so jealous. <laughs> you get to have that life. I've watched the biggest little farm like 87 times and I just, it looks super fascinating. I could see how you get really, <laughs> really enthralled with that. I to say that I, I really, really enjoy the life here. And I think like for all of us that are in, involved in this profession, um, it seems like the, the lifestyle is the probably the number one um, reason we're doing it. You know, it's the main thing. We just enjoy the daily work and the daily life. And having two young sons now, um, I could not imagine a better place to raise children. That's awesome. So it's, we're, we're great, really grateful. Wow, that's amazing. So love the title of your book, um, especially the part where it says the ecology and nutritional case for meat. And we've covered the nutritional aspect on the show quite a bit. And you're such an expert on the ecology on some of this. I want to go like right to the issue and kind of do a deep dive on what everybody just knows to be the facts about carbon dioxide and methane and how cows and their farts and burps and whatever else they do is destroying the planet and ruining the greenhouse gases, our atmosphere. Can you kind of um, lead us down that path? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, it's been interesting to watch the the way people in agriculture are viewing the whole climate change issue. And I think uh, 10 or 20 years ago, there was a lot of skepticism within the farming and ranching community about climate change. And I think that's changed pretty dramatically. Um, I would say 10 years ago, there was still, there was less skepticism, but there was still quite a bit. And I would say today there is still some skepticism, but I think the vast majority of people in agriculture now um, would agree that there is human caused climate change and are recognizing that there's an opportunity for agriculture to be, you know, to be practiced in a really different way that could be uh, helpful to climate change rather than, you know, contributing to it. And it's it, it's strange, again, that, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, how public issues are talked about and what gets attention. It's really strange how much attention cattle have gotten in this whole question, because um, the reason there's so much attention on, on cattle is because cattle have this very unique digestive system, which is multi-chambered, and they have this very large population of microorganisms, you know, bacteria and fungi and protozoa and all kinds of things. It's a very diverse population of microorganisms that, that live. And this is actually kind of similar to humans, but they have it in a more extreme way in the cattle digestive system. They have this um, ability, cattle do, to eat what is essentially inedible vegetation, you know, for the rest, most of the rest of the, you know, um, animal kingdom. And so they can just basically live off of grass, which is not something, you know, humans cannot do that at all. In fact, you know, you would try, you would starve to death very quickly if you tried to live off of grass. So, um, but because they have this very, um, evolved digestive system that allows them to do this, they also, um, they're um, basically breaking down cellulosic uh, vegetation. That's you know, and and, and you know, it's a, I have I came up with um, an analogy at one time that I think is helpful for people. It's it, termites have a similar um, 
similar kind of system. So they're like little tiny cows. They have um, the ability to eat wood, you know, which is again, something we all think of as, well, that's not really edible, is it? You know, and for most, uh, most animals, it's not. And for humans, it's not. But termites can eat wood because they have um, a tremendous population of um, microorganisms in their guts, you know, like on a little miniature scale, and they can break down wood. Well, um, grass is sort of like wood, and it's also just basically cellulose, and there's not much else there. But because um, cattle have this very, um, you know, um, large population of microorganisms, they can break down um this grass and turn it into meat and milk, you know, and it's, I mean, it triggers their own growth and their own health. And there's really interesting research um, showing that they, you know, the more diverse the pasture is, um, the healthier they're going to be and the better uh, able to uh, avoid disease or even self-medicate against disease if they have, you know, access to diverse pastures. So the quality of what they're grazing on matters. But in any event, in that digestive process, there's emission of methane. And um, it comes both, as you said, from the burps and the farts. And so there's been this like, you know, huge, I mean, there's been a very conscious decision made by the animal rights community to glom onto that and to claim that people need to stop eating beef because of those methane emissions. But when you look in this bigger picture, um, as I was saying earlier, it's a really small percentage of the total amount of methane and, and total global warming gases that are emitted in the world. And there's also just these very fundamental problems with the whole way the methane issue has been treated. So um, again, I go into a lot of detail in the book, but to try to quickly summarize, um, first of all, we're not measuring it correctly. So um, this is, again, the work of Dr. Miles Allen at Oxford University, the physicist who's a methane expert. He explains that there's basically a historic methane load on the globe and that the um, ruminant animals have always contributed to that methane load. And because uh, methane is a very short-lived gas, it only survives in the atmosphere for, for about 10 years, and then it basically breaks down. And um, what, what Dr. Allen has shown is that the way that the global warming gases are measured, they equate methane and CO2, and they basically say, you know, in public policy terms, so like whenever you're trying to regulate it, um, they say, well, this much methane is equivalent to this much CO2. But he says in the real world, that's actually kind of nonsense because the gases function so differently when, when they're released in the real world. And when, in fact, he shows that if you have a cattle herd um, simply, you know, grazing on grass, the methane that they're emitting will break down um, continuously, and the, the historic load that that herd of cattle has emitted will not change over time unless you increase the size of your herd. And he he argues that we need to use a totally different system for talking about methane because there's actually no global warming effect if you simply maintain the size of the herd, whether it's on your ranch or globally or domestically, whatever area you're talking about. So it, just right from the start, we're measuring methane wrong. You know, we're treating it in, inaccurately from a scientific perspective. And I go through a lot of detail about the argument about that in the book. And then 
there's um, there are many other um, questions surrounding methane. There's no um, actual parallel between either domestically or internationally between the size of the cattle herd and the amount of methane that's in the atmosphere. And part of this is because, you know, as I was just saying, there isn't really um, a good argument that shows cattle herds actually contributing to global warming. But then there's also this question of there are tons of sources of um, methane that we're not currently regulating or measuring. So I mentioned earlier about um, methane leaks from natural gas production. And like Dr. Robert Howarth at Cornell University, the Methane Project, he's shown that even um, methane that was once claimed to be from cattle, if you look carefully at the satellite data imagery of methane emissions around the U.S. and around the world, it does not in any way correlate to um, cattle populations. And he says, actually, this really should be attributed to um, natural gas production. And um, I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's been recent research um, in um, Europe that was just released that had for the first time actually measured the amount of methane leaking from um, natural gas production uh, facilities. And it was huge amounts and none of this had been previously measured or regulated. So there's just this, you know, um, there's a huge problem with the way that um, methane is being, um, you know, uh, measured, the way its policy is being made surrounding it. And, on the other side of it, too, there's really good evidence showing that if you have healthy grazing systems, you have more uh, more biological life in the soil, including methane oxidizing bacteria. And so you have bacteria that actually consume methane and they and they exist in higher numbers where you have healthy grazing systems. There's just more of every kind of life in a soil where you have a healthy grazing system. And so a lot of that methane ends up being oxidized or eaten, consumed by those methane, uh, the soil dwelling microorganisms. And there's just a lot, there's a lot more to say about it. You know, there's seaweed, you can put seaweed into cattle feed. There's That's been done in different parts of the world and it's shown to offset as much as 99% of the methane that's emitted from cattle. There are lots of ways that this issue can be dealt with and it's being really, you know, sort of radically misunderstood from the start. So I just think the methane thing is basically a red herring and it's something that has been dramatically overblown almost manufactured. You know, there's a seed of truth to it. There is a lot of times to these things, but it's so dramatically overblown by people that don't want us to eat meat. And, and that is really the problem. So, uh, you know, I just, I think people need to stop thinking that methane in particular is a reason not to eat beef. Mm. Wow, that's so fascinating. I mean, I think you mentioned this in your book, like around the termites, there also live those creatures that eat on eat the methane. Is that correct? Yeah. So so going back to the termite analogy, um, there were studies done in, I think it started in the 19, early 1970s. They began uh, measuring um, or they noticed that, you know, there was methane emitted from termite mounds and from termite, you know, individual termites. And initially, it was thought that this was a source of methane that had to be counted in global inventories of methane emissions because, you know, there are a lot of natural sources of methane emissions, not just the wild ruminants, but also swamps and peat bogs and, you know, um, and, and basically any vegetation that has water over it for a period of time that's going to end up causing methane because it's basically when the vegetation is breaking down, it causes methane emissions. And 
Uh, and then subsequent studies of methane um, from termite mounds showed something really interesting. They showed that actually the net effect of the termite mound was not to emit methane. And that was because the termite mounds were um, populated really heavily by these methane-loving bacteria. And so this was really surprising to researchers initially because they thought, well, they emit the methane, so obviously they're a source. But nature is so interesting. You know, there's always a kind of... Um, um, the niches get filled, you know, that's how, it, that's why evolution is so fascinating. Whenever there's a kind of an opportunity, nature fills it in. Um, and the whole reason that, um, you know, in my view, why global warming is so problematic for humanity is because that we've made the change too fast, you know, there, um, so like the trees in Europe have been shown that they actually migrate naturally over time, depending on how climate is changing. <laughs> but the change is happening so quickly now that the trees have not been able to migrate fast enough. And that's why it's potentially catastrophic now, whereas previous fluctuations of the climate were things that, you know, um, species could tolerate, you know, because they could respond to it over time as the change happened. And that's right now um, is, is not happening with so many species because the change is happening too quickly. But basically, um, termite mounds are not emitters of methane because they have this population of methane oxidizing organisms living there right alongside the termites. And to some degree that's happened as well with um, larger ruminants, you know, with, with cattle, there are um, soil organisms that, um, that eat the methane that they emit. Uh, that doesn't fully offset their methane emissions, but it's part of the picture. And the picture is just way more complicated, you know, than people generally want to acknowledge. Mm. I love that you mentioned nature. Like if you are, you know, interested in watching like our planet or planet Earth documentaries, you understand that like nature figures it out. And the more you leave it alone, the more it figures it out. There's something to eat this thing that could be a problem. And then this other thing comes in and it's all been sorted out. And it's until like stupid humans come bumbling in and screwing everything up. But, like everything just kind of works on its own. So amazingly we've mentioned carbon. Well, and, and, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Casey, but I just want to say that that is why um, modeling, you know, food systems on nature is so important because nature it has this incredible complexity and a way of balancing and figuring things out. Out. But when you try to create systems that are completely in, you know, in contrast to and kind of ignoring the way nature functions, it does not work. And that that's what we're having a problem with now in food production. And, you know, sort of globally with all of these human systems that we've created, we've we have felt that humans like you said, <laughs> stupid humans. And I felt like, oh, we don't have to pay attention to, you know, nature's laws. We can, um, we're above that or beyond that or whatever. And in reality, you know, we're part of nature. And when we, you know, I always think of the key, the cornerstone of regenerative agriculture is thinking of ourselves as part of a complex system and understanding how to work in that system and how do we, you know, how do we balance things and how do things get regenerated and reused and recycled and um, what are these systems, how are they connected? And regenerative agriculture is all about trying to model nature's complexity. And that's why animals are so crucial because animals are an absolutely essential part of nature's cycling and nature's regeneration systems. And when you think, oh, we can just create, you know, we just need to grow plants for human food. 
Well, those plant systems are largely devoid. I mean, you can do plant farming well. It's not that you can't, but but you can never have the type of fully regenerative system without including animals in your system. Mm, that's a great point. It, it, you know, Lee Arkey talks about this as like drawdown. You're taking more resources from the land than you can put back. And a cow is a great way to put things back. You talked about using their manure to, um, you know, add carbon to the ground. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between methane and carbon and how we need to think about those two things? Yeah, well, of course, methane is made up of carbon. I mean, it's a, the, the main component in carbon and in methane. Um uh, and, and hydrogen, basically it's carbon and hydrogen. And um, of course, CO2 is based on carbon as well. C, uh, uh, it's C and two, it's oxygen and carbon. And um, and so we talk about, a lot of times when we talk about global warming and um, the impact on the earth, we talk about it as in terms of carbon, but the, they really are kind of very different. You know, you have CO2 and you have um, methane. The commonality, though, is the, the carbon component. And carbon is essentially the life element of soils. And how much life is in a soil is often talked about in terms of how much carbon is in the soil. And um, the reason, again, why animals are so important is they really foster um, carbon going into the soils. Because when you have animal grazing, I mean, all the species are beneficial in terms of, um, you know, having uh, more biologically active soils and more carbon in the soils. But grazing has a really unique role because where you have grazing animals, they will actually clip the vegetation with their mouths. And that clipping, um, clipping action and actually the saliva, in fact, um, from their mouths actually helps trigger growth from those plants. And, and where you have that pruning action, you actually have diversity, more diversity. And so you end up having um, more life, that's more diversity of life in the soils underneath the ground, and then more diversity of vegetation kind of on the surface. And part of that, there are lots of different reasons for that, but part of the reason is because um, Wherever you have soil, you'll have um, lots of different kinds of seeds and, you know, um, roots in the soil and everything's sort of trying to come up. And if you have um, one plant that's growing a lot and it's kind of dominant in, you know, in a grassland ecosystem or some other kind of ecosystem, um, a lot of times the other plants will not have an opportunity to begin growing, just like where you have a large tree in a forest those smaller trees will not really be able to grow until that larger tree uh, dies or falls down or for some reason, you know, loses large limbs or whatever. The sunlight will then be able to penetrate into the forest canopy and then the smaller trees will begin to grow. And actually, I've read a couple of articles or books rather about um, forests in the last few years. And it was very interesting understanding that that whole system of how that works. A grassland is sort of similar. If you have... Um, you know, one plant that grows first in the season because they all have time, different times when they would naturally grow. If you don't have the grazing animals come through, you will have a dominant plant that starts first and then much less opportunity for the other plants to begin growing. So one of the things that happens when grazing animals come through is they actually create growth opportunities for other types of plants. And that's one of the reasons you get a much more diverse ecosystem. So you get, um, with those, um, th with the growing vegetation, they actually, through photosynthesis, will pull the carbon into the plant and um, um, release it 
from the roots, but it's much more complex than that. There's a whole microscopic uh, process that happens where the plant actually exchanges the carbon for the nutrients that it needs, and it gets it from the soil. And there's even a substance called glomalin, which was discovered by two USDA soil scientists. One of them was Dr. Christine Nichols. They were both women, interestingly. And um, Dr. Christine Nichols continued a bunch of research on this at USDA and then at Rodale Institute. And she's shown in her work how glomalin, the substance that um, coats the roots, actually facilitates the transactions that happen between the plant and the soil so that the plant gets the nutrients it needs and the soil gets the carbon <laughs> from the photosynthesis that happens. Wow. And all of this is fostered by grazing and by um, the pruning that happens and everything we're just talking about, but then also by the, um, the watering and the addition of um, microbes and um, uh, nutrients that are in the manure. So there's a lot of um, evidence from around the world that where you remove grazing from an ecosystem, you actually lose a lot of the life in the soil. And there's also really good evidence that um, this is kind of very well acknowledged by everybody in the soil community, where you do crop production, you're causing, you know, the plowing um, does tremendous damage to that whole um, system of below ground roots that are doing all these exchanges and all the life that's happening there. And it basically makes the life system below ground um, much more difficult. It, it basically kills a lot of the life that's down there. So whenever you have cropping systems, it's much harder to have all of these exchanges that are happening. So this is why grazing is so important. And rather than um, fertility being added through chemicals, you know, which are all fossil fuel-based um, chemicals, you actually have a natural source of fertility and biodiversity and returning moisture and um, helpful bacteria through the digestive tract of the grazing animals, cattle in particular. And, and this is the way we need to be thinking about these things, thinking of them as systems and how everything's connected rather than just these really oversimplified messages, you know, like, oh, cattle burp, therefore they're bad, right? <laughs> it's all about nature. It's all about understanding nature's complex systems and trying to recreate those in our food systems. And the grazing animals, cattle in particular, are ex an extremely important part. Wow. Well, speaking of humans thinking we know more than nature, um, we are inventing fake meat, plants that are designed to taste akin to meat. I don't know. I'm never going to try it. But what what is going on there? What? <laughs> I don't know. Question to ask. Like, why why are we trying to create meat, and what kind of impacts on on the climate does that have? Yeah, I know. It's again, you know, when I was talking a few minutes ago about public issues and how we think about things and they just get so oversimplified. And then usually over time, common sense does end up winning the day. Not always, <laughs> but I think I'm hoping that's going to happen with this. You know, there was all this attention and excitement a few years ago about, oh, we can replace meat, you know, and there's all this money coming out of Silicon Valley and high-tech solutions, you know, whether it's um, lab meat that's actually grown in a lab or it's other forms of genetically modified ingredients that are put together to create the, the sense of meat, something similar to meat. And there's been a lot of claims that these things are both more ecological and healthier, you know, and I've written about this both, you know, I've written some articles about this and I talk about it quite a bit in the book. To me, there are two big problems. One is that I 
I've seen the kinds of farming systems that the ingredients for these kind of things come from, and they're not uh, ecologically sound. And in fact, uh, a lot of what's wrong with the world's food system is these large monocrop um, systems where you have, you know, what I was just talking about, you basically have uh, biologically dead fields, you know, these massive fields, most of them with lots of um, kinds of chemicals being applied and huge machines, you know, doing the, um, doing the, um, plowing and then doing the planting and then doing the harvesting. And then these crops need to be, you know, dried, transport, you know, whether you're talking about soy or wheat or whatever the ingredients are, you know, there's many steps along the, the way before it gets into the point where it's an ingredient for these fake meat burgers. And all of those things are intensive in terms of the resources and the emissions, but they're also things that have a lot of de- ecological downstream effects. So, you know, we know, that the large um, dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is like this, you know, the size of the state of New Jersey, is caused almost entirely by major crop production that's in the upper Midwest, you know, in the farming areas of Iowa and Missouri and all of that. And that's just going right down the rivers of our country, in the middle of our country, down into the Gulf of Mexico. And is causing, you know, this massive dead zone because it had and it has all all kinds of effects in all those communities as well. And in their water systems, you know, Iowa has huge water pollution problems. And these are largely from agricultural chemicals. You know, so these are the kind of out of sight effects of, um, you know, producing the, you know, the supposedly more ecologically healthy and and healthier um, burger. And then on the on the health side to me, you know, more and more I have become convinced I mean, I was really kind of fortunate. I was raised by parents that were very interested in eating healthfully. And my mom had a big garden and she used to bake our own bread and make make yogurt and all that stuff. She's from Germany and, you know, it was kind of normal still uh, when she grew up that you would make a lot of your own food. And she did that for us. And so I had this... Um, understanding right away early on in life of the importance of eating eating healthy food and eating whole you know whole foods and you know making your own food not eating processed foods i remember i used to beg her to get captain crunch cereal you know <laughs> and pop tarts <laughs> we we used to the whole you know i have three siblings and we were always asking for these things my parents were like no we don't drink this. you know tang i remember tang i wanted oh tang really bad. I can taste it. Uh, can taste it. <laughs> and you know, we were just like, "What is wrong with our parents? They're so unmodern," you know. And now, of course, I'm like, "Thank God!" Right? And um, <laughs> but anyway, I had that. That was my early, you know, uh, right away. I had that kind of training, at, you know, for my parents. Um, but sort of more and more in life, I've gotten convinced that they were really onto something, and that is, you know, that I think that food, um, it, the healthier it is, is very closely related to how how close it is to its source. And, you know, if it's a French fry or a potato chip, it's not really a healthy food, especially a potato chip probably. But if it's a potato, you know, it's taken straight out of the ground um, or, you know, as close as possible to that, um, that's going to be something that has a lot of nourishment um, for you. And that's going to be a good food and everything, you know, that that's true, whether it's a kale chip or, a you know, <laughs> kale or whether it's, you know, basically any food, the less processed it is and the more whole it is, um, the more nourishment it's going to have for your body and the less harmful effects it's going to have on your body. So um, to me, I've seen some videos actually um, showing uh, the the way some of these fake burgers are produced. Oh, so In fact, gross. I was on a 
Oh, I was on a PBS NewsHour segment. Um, my husband and I were a couple of years ago, um, and they were talking about you know the the fake burgers, and they showed just like in that they showed a bunch of the production of it. And I, my son is sitting next to me on the sofa, and he goes, "Oh my God, why would anyone want to eat that stuff?" And I was like, "Oh yay, I've taught him a lot. Get good." <laughs> watching it with his own eyes and thinking that's so unappetizing, you know? And for me, um, that other side of it, you know, the processed food aspect of it is the other reason I think these burgers are just not a good choice. And like you, I, I haven't even tried any of them because I know I don't want to put that kind of stuff into my body. Oh, that's sure. not going to be what I'm going to eat. And it's not going to be what I'm going to buy or serve to my family. I'm, you know, I'm um, really focused every day on gathering food. We have a big garden and we have a, um, a little orchard for ourselves. And then of course we raise meat ourselves. And I have a um, guy down the road that I do some bartering with to get our eggs. And we have two different vegetable stands that we get vegetables from in our community. And we just try to get, we're, we're really lucky too. We're right on the ocean. So we even get to barter for our fish. And, um, and I, you know, and so I, I know not everybody has all of those options and it's time consuming. And so some people don't have the time available, but for me, it's a really, really important um, and actually quite an enjoyable process too, to get to know all these people and understand where our food came from. And the more I've um, uh, sort of made that the way I get our food, the more I enjoy that process because we know a lot about the food and I, I feel really good about it. And the food is um, really high quality, not just in terms of the nourishment, but in terms of the eating quality. You know, it's like food that's really enjoyable to eat, really delicious. And um, so for me, the fake burgers, to bring it back to that question, um, it's kind of the opposite of how I want us to eat and how I'm eating myself. And so it's just not at all appealing to me. Mm. And it, I find what I find really troubling about it is that there's this, um, you know, kind of quick soundbite that goes with these fake burgers that it's better for the environment, better for your body. And it's like, actually, no, <laughs> not, even close. not at all. <laughs> yeah. On both fronts. Yeah. So right. you made, you made a really great point. Like, I don't know anybody that I could go barter fish with. That sounds really cool. But like, I loved what Bill, Dr. Bill Shunden told us on his episode. It's like, you can take a step. You can do something to get a little bit closer. Maybe you're eating out at McDonald's three days a week. And we just lost McDonald's as a potential sponsor, but like maybe one of those meals you could replace with something you can make at home. And it might be pop tarts and tang, like, but, but that's like a step and you can progress from there and you will over time, I would argue, you will notice such a difference in the quality of the food and how it tastes that you will naturally self-select better and better quality food over time. Just like like you said, it's so enjoyable and nourishing and you develop relationships and it's, it's such a cool thing. Like we never go out to eat anymore partially because we save so much money. And the other part is like, we make better food than we can go get at most restaurants anyway. Like it's, it's, and it's more fun. We love it. Exactly. And if, you know, and if there are bright sides to this whole pandemic, I would say the, the, the most important shift I've seen from people that I'm talking to all around the country on social media and so forth is people are cooking more at home and they're noticing that, oh, wow, I can make stuff, you know, and I can make stuff that I really like eating and stuff that is healthier for me. And so I, I really um, appreciate restaurants and I, I'm, I'm sad for the fact that this has been such a challenging time for restaurants. But what I'm glad about is that more people are recognizing that they have a lot more power over how they feed themselves, you know, than they once did. And people are 
um, more in, interested now, I think, than any time in recent history in um, finding out more about the food they're getting where and, and trying to get stuff from people in their community. And I always say, I, I totally agree with what you're just saying, Casey, about getting kind of one step at a time. And I always say, I think a great place to start is with your eggs, because most places in the U.S., unless you're living like right in the heart of New York City or something, you can probably find someone in your community that's raising backyard eggs. And if you just make the effort, or you can do it yourself, that's a bigger step. But um, if you find someone that's got a little backyard chicken flock, they almost always have excess eggs that they are willing to sell or barter for. And when you start getting those eggs, you will notice an immediate difference in terms of the eating quality. And they're way healthier, especially if they're ones that are you know, raised on grass, that's an important part of it. But you'll you will enjoy that process so much. Just um, the the process of um, you know the exchange that you have with that person, and knowing where they come from, and seeing the hens, and knowing that's where you know the food is coming from, and the taste quality, the eating quality is going to be better. And it what that does to it's kind of like a gateway drug. <laughs> it's a gateway food. <laughs> you know, you get um, you get that first item like eggs, and you say, "Oh my gosh, this was worth the effort." And um, this is absolutely what's happened to me. You know, more and more of my diet has been stuff that I get directly from the source because I realize every time, like, "Oh, I this tastes better. I I enjoy eating this more. My family likes this better. It's worth the effort." And mm-hmm. so. Um, it's a gradual process, an evolution. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's great advice. Starting with eggs. I love eggs. And you're absolutely right. Like all, all the way down to like the color of the yolk. It's not even like the same food. It's so different. Exactly. So you are, you know, you did your revision on your book and I love asking authors this question when they do a revision or they, they cover the same topic again. Did, did you have something that you wrote the first time that you look back on and you go, wow, I totally called balls and strikes incorrectly on that one. I got to scribble this part out and, and have new information or for you, was it more adding on to the information that you already put out correctly the first time? Well, I think, you know, the, the publisher invited me to rewrite it. And I actually was thrilled at the opportunity because I feel like the, um, the issue, you know, of meat and how it's raised and whether we should be eating it and how much we should be eating and all that. I think those are just more and more topical, you know, than ever. So I was thrilled to have the opportunity. And when I first uh, agreed to do it, I told them, well, I can probably do it in two or three months. And, <laughs> and then little did I know that when I started going through it, you know, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, there was a lot that I wanted to change and it hasn't been so much like X, X, cross that out. That was totally <laughs> wrong. It's much more like, well, this is, I see that a little differently now, you know, and that whole discussion we were just having about um, processed foods versus kind of real whole foods that are close to the source. There's much more focus on that now because I, I increasingly view the the industrialization of our food system, both on the farming side and on the diet side, as the the key problem. And so I'm, you know, I'm more focused on that in the new book. And, um, you know, I did a lot of things like I added a lot about methane and I put a lot of new research on soil carbon in there and a lot of new research on um, meat as a good source of nutrition, you know, and kind of I added a bunch of new kind of updated all the research and added new research. But there was um, there was just more in in my um, current version, there was much more um, focus on this whole question of, um, you know, what food has 
you know, for our bodies that we need when it's kind of in its real whole state that it no longer has when it's a processed food. You know, so just kind of focusing on that as the core principle of how we want to try to farm and how we want to eat. And that has huge implications for both the farming side and the food side. So I can't really think of anything that I like crossed out and said, oh, God, I'm so embarrassed that I wrote that. <laughs> I'm glad to say that there's there isn't really one of those. Uh, there could be, you know, but there there isn't. But it's it's much more of a I, my thinking has evolved quite a bit. And I think the situation has evolved quite a bit because we are really um, as we were just talking about a moment ago, there's a lot of suggestion now that we should be um, substituting meat with these processed foods, you know, and so there's um, there's I give I give a lot more focus to that whole um you know, processed foods as a problem and why that is not the solution. Mm, yeah, I just, I followed you a lot over the years and this book is so well-written and it's not that much different from anything you've ever said before. I really think you got this concept right from the beginning and I really appreciate the added information and updated information. It's so cool to see your writing on the pandemic. It's it's really fresh and really interesting. I, I'm i gonna tweak the, the second to last question we always ask people. What what would you say to somebody like me or another listener who's sitting here absolutely like horrified about the dead zones in the oceans and the desertification of our land and what's going on in our atmospheres and all of these things happening that, that I don't I don't think I can control. I don't think I can, you know, stand on a corner and, you know, share my message and everybody's just all of a sudden going to change these monumental systems. Um, and, and also like public health, like go walk around in public and look around and you'll see there's a big, big problem that we're going to have to grapple with in, in the coming decades. And it sucks. It's going to be really hard. What can I do as, as me, myself, or just a listener who's sitting there thinking like, damn, like there's so much going on. What can one person do to move the ball in the right direction? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I think the the real um, challenge is not to get overwhelmed, you know, because it's it, these are big issues and we sometimes feel powerless. You know, even changing our diet seems really difficult, let alone changing the whole world, right? And affecting climate change and other things like that. So I think the key is not to feel paralyzed, you know, by the scope of the problem, but to recognize that actually food is kind of exciting in that you do have an opportunity to sort of shift what you are doing and how you're eating, what sources are your food. You know, voting with your food dollars is actually a really powerful way to improve your own health and to support the kind of agriculture that you think the world should be doing. And it takes some effort and some time, but it's absolutely something that, you know, the vast majority of us can do. We can do a lot more of that. And I would just say this thing we were just talking about with, you know, look for better eggs, you know, these small steps that we can make are really important in our diet and where we get our food from. But I would also say we're all, you know, citizens as well. We're not just consumers and eaters, we're also citizens. And so I um, always take the opportunity whenever I have any interaction with, you know, elected officials, I always talk about food and farming and the connection between good health and good food and good agricultural systems. And I think all of us should embrace those opportunities. And, you know, of course, um, Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio really made um, 
regenerative um, farming and the connection between health and good farming practices and health care and the cost of health care. And he connected all those dots in the, you know, the primary season of the presidential election. And I thought that was one of the most exciting things I've seen happen in recent years in the public sphere, because I had never heard any elected official talking like that before. So I think there's, um, there's a lot of opportunity for each of us that care about the stuff we've been talking about today to just have that conversation with our elected officials whenever we're interacting with them. Just let them know, you know, hey, we care about regenerative food. We care about regenerative farming. Um, and there's, you know, for example, there's been a law that's been reintroduced for years in the Congress and has never gotten enough support to pass just to make it illegal to continuously feed antibiotics to livestock. And that's something the European Union outlawed a long time ago because it's known to cause public health um, challenges and to be bad for the environment. And we've still, we, we still allow that in the U.S. But if, if, if that kind of antibiotic usage is outlawed, then it levels the playing field for all of the farmers and ranchers. And you don't have some people doing it, some people not doing it. And you don't have to have all this cheating and all this worrying about cheating that does take place right now because nobody's allowed to do it. Um, and that's the kind of legislation that can happen. You know, so we, we do have public policy things that can be done to help, but we also can, um, you know, just seek out food from our local sources. And, um, and also if we can, for those of us that have the opportunity to raise, raise some of our own food, you know, um, even if it's just a small little garden or even pots of plants that you have, uh, in your windowsill or on your balcony or on your backyard, you know, patio, wherever, um, we can, um, be part of uh, growing our own food if we possibly can. And there are also urban gardens that people can participate in. All of these avenues are good ideas. You know, follow every opportunity you get to be part of the process of creating your food and procuring your food rather than just going into a grocery store and filling your cart and checking out and bring it home. And, you know, and especially preparing processed food or heating up the takeout, you know, those are, those are things that are okay too, but not, not as your dominant daily, you know, way of eating. Do as much as you can of foraging your food, growing your food and getting food directly from farms. And you'll find that there's, you know, just so many different kinds of rewards for doing that. So that, that's my main piece of advice for people. I love that. That is amazing advice. What a great way to end this conversation. Nicolette, where would you like people to go to find you and find your work? Well, I have a very active Facebook um, and Twitter handle at Defending Beef. And so people can look for my you know updates there. And of course, my book is available from the publisher, which is Chelsea Green Publishing and on Amazon. All, all of my books are available on Amazon as well. So obviously I encourage people. And also, if you just Google my name, you'll see a lot of the other writings I've done um, for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. And there's, there's lots there that people can look at if they want to follow up on any of the stuff we've been talking about today. That's awesome. I highly encourage the listener to take Nicolette up on that offer. Go do some Google searching, buy her book. It is really uh, a very interesting and thoughtful and well done piece that will get you thinking very, very differently about your food. Nicolette Nyman, I really so much appreciate you and all your work and everything that you've done and the message that you're sharing, uh, the books you've written, everything has been, just been so awesome. We're so grateful for all the work. I, as we were talking before this interview, all the hate that you probably get, which is so stupid. I just, we're really grateful for you and everything that you've done. And thank you so much for appearing on our show today. It was an absolute honor to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. Awesome. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.